Hello, everybody. You are listening to Things Observed, and I am your host, Luke Marshall. And today we have a fun episode, perfect with Halloween on the horizon. We are going to be talking about the Son of Sam killings, sometimes called the 44 caliber killings. And I think it's going to be a fun episode. And this is perfect because we just got done doing a two-part series on the Process Church of the Final Judgment, and that will end up coming into play with what it is that we are talking about. And I'm not going to spend much time going over the official story because, as you guys know, Things Observed is not a platform to discuss the official narratives, but rather here we try to take apart official narratives and try to get to the real truth what is hidden behind the official narratives, what it is that the official narrative is trying to cover up. But we are going to discuss the official narrative just very briefly because although most of you guys are probably familiar with the official narrative of the Son of Sam killings, it'll be helpful for all of us to refresh our memory. And for those who may not be aware of it or just very vaguely aware of the official narrative, it'll be instructive for us to cover that and the reason i say that most all of us probably know about the official narrative of the son of sam killings is because it seems like we live in a serial killer saturated time period just about everybody and their mother i know my mother is interested in true crime um it just seems to be something that really appeals to the american collective consciousness at this time so what better thing to do than to deconstruct one of the ultimate true crime stories, something that has had countless documentaries made about it, countless podcasts have been done about it, um, countless books have been written about it, but for the most part, a lot of them are lacking. But one book that isn't lacking too much as far as in being critical of the official story is The Ultimate Evil by Mari Terry. And that is going to be one of our main sources today. And I do think that there are some problems with the book. And I think there, there are some minor problems with Mari Terry's research. But overall, it does a very good job about bringing into question a lot of the official story when it comes to David Berkowitz and the Son of Sam killings. And so, without further ado, let's get into this. Let's cover the official story real quick so we can get to the juicy and meaty stuff that we're all really wanting to get to. So, David Berkowitz would confess to eight different shootings that killed six and wounded 11 people. And the killings would begin on July 29th of 1976 with the shooting of Donna Loria and Jody Valenti. And Valenti would survive, but Donna Loria would not. She would be the first person to be slain in what would come to be known as the Son of Sam Killings. And so on July 31st, 1977, the last of the shootings would take place. So the shootings took place over roughly a year time period. And this shooting would take place when a man would shoot Robert Violante and Stacy Moskowitz, who were kissing in Violante's car on their first date. And Violante would lose his eye and Moskowitz would die from her injuries. And then... Not long after, on August 10th of 1977, David Berkowitz would be arrested, reportedly saying, Well, you got me. What took you so long? 
And so then Berkowitz would be briefly held at a police station in Yonkers before he would be transferred to a separate station in Coney Island where the Son of Sam Task Force was located. And at 1 a.m. on the night of his arrest, after Mayor Beam had a wordless encounter with Berkowitz, so they didn't say anything to one another, he would confidently broadcast to the world, the people of the city of New York can rest easy because of the fact that the police have captured a man whom they believe to be the son of Sam. So uh, kind of a classic hallmark of a bunch of baloney coming down the pike is when they capture somebody and, you know, very soon after they are certain that this is the man who did it without, you know, proper investigation or anything of the sort to determine that. So initially when he was being questioned, which it's important to keep in mind that the initial questioning of the Son of Sam killer of David Berkowitz was only about 30 minutes long, which you think for someone who terrorized New York for over a year, who millions of papers were sold detailing the salacious details of the crimes of this case. A whole city was terrified. Women with brown hair were cutting their hair and dyeing their hair or wearing their hair up because most of the victims had brown hair. Everybody was definitely terrified. Uh, something that a lot of the documentaries and podcasts like to mention about the Son of Sam is that apparently the discotecas uh, the discos were like had attendance drop by 80 to 90 percent. Uh, everybody was kind of living in terror. Terror like this really wouldn't strike New York until after 9-11. Another thing that we shouldn't believe the official story on. Um, but anyhow, so after being questioned, Berkowitz would say that the Sam mentioned in his first letter was a former neighbor, Sam Carr, and that his dog, a black Labrador named Harvey, was possessed by an ancient demon that commanded Berkowitz to kill. And then Berkowitz, when he was home, uh, when his home was investigated, uh, they found all kinds of satanic graffiti covering the walls of his apartment, and there was only a mattress on the ground with one bare lobe, bare lobe. What am I talking about? One bare bulb hanging above head and think that there was like empty milk cartons and and stuff like that and the place was a mess and would kind of you know play into uh what it is that people think of as a serial killer and the interrogation that took place yeah only the day after Berkowitz would tell this story as I said was only 30 minutes and then after this, he would plead guilty in order to avoid a trial. So he would be brought before a court, but it was basically a series of yes and no questions, and he just pleaded guilty to everything, which you think with a case that was so ho high profile that uh, they would have wanted to investigate a little bit and get more to the bottom of things. But anyways, I will read a brief quote from Sinister Forces Book 3, which is written by Peter Lavenda, because it seems like the rule of thing, uh, Things Observed podcast is that we can't go more than one episode without mentioning Peter Lavenda. So last episode, we didn't mention him, so that means that it's obligatory that I mentioned Peter Lavenda in this episode. But anyways, Sinister Forces Book 3 says, 
When Berkowitz was finally arrested for the crimes on August 10th, 1977, for those following this sort of thing, the anniversary of the LaBianca killings in 1969, he pled guilty, thus avoiding a trial. This had happened before, of course, such in the cases of accused Martin Luther King assassin James Earl Ray and John Lennon assassin Mark David Chapman. I don't want to elevate David Berkowitz to the same level as a political assassin, but will only point out that when the public is deprived of the right to see the evidence laid out in a trial, the public is similarly robbed of a chance to understand the crime and to benefit from the investigative resources of a defense team which might uncover a deeper, darker truth. I believe this is something which we should not allow to happen when a case is as important as a political assassination or a serial murder spree that held a major city hostage for more than a year. And while Peter Lavenda is often wrong on some things, and we've covered that in our second part in the Tom DeLonge series, we talk a little bit about the susness of Peter Lavenda. I think Lavenda is right on the money here. So that in a very concise manner, is the official story of the Son of Sam killings. So now let's talk a little bit about who it is that David Berkowitz is before we get into deconstructing the case and looking into some of the work of Maury Terry and questioning the official story. So David Berkowitz, on his birth certificate, he is listed as the son of Tony Falco and Betty Broder, although it is likely that his actual father was Joseph Kleinman, and he was born on June 1st of 1953, and he would be put up for adoption, which we will see kind of left him a little bit butthurt and would lead to further disappointment down the road, but we're jumping ahead of ourselves, my friends. So he would be adopted by Nathan and Pearl Berkowitz, and everything was hunky-dory until Pearl, his adoptive mother, died of cancer when Berkowitz was 14. And so this is when we're going to start to see the change in David Berkowitz. So in 1969, he would move to the Bronx with his father, and he would join the auxiliary police force the following year, and he would also join the fire department. In a way that I saw Lavinda describe it in Sinister Forces Book 3, which we just referenced, is that Berkowitz, kind of from this point on, he would always find himself in one uniform or another. He had a penchant for the uniform and whatever authority such a uniform kind of commanded. And his father would, shortly after this time period, remarry a woman by the name of Julia. He wouldn't remarry her, but he would remarry. It would be his first marriage to Julia. And uh, Julia's daughter has been described by Berkowitz and others as a bit of a witch. And that's not to say that she was not nice, but that she was um, had an interest in the occult and witchcraft. And so this would kind of be Berkowitz's first minor introduction into the world of the occult. But Berkowitz truly wouldn't get into the occult um, until later in his life. But once again, we are jumping ahead of ourselves. So Berkowitz would graduate from Columbus High School, and he would immediately join the Army. And while this was going on during the Vietnam time period, he would be stationed in Korea. And it is during this time period that he would begin experimenting with LSD before being transferred to Fort Knox, where he would start to undergo some more significant changes. 
And so it's just interesting to note that a lot of the times when we were talking about serial killers, a lot of them have to have happen to have a background in the military or one of the branches of the armed forces. So it's very interesting that Berkowitz did. And it's also interesting because we're going to get into some program to kill type stuff uh, later on in this episode and just in this series on Berkowitz in general, um, that he would start experimenting with LSD and that this would kind of precipitate some of his changes. Because I don't know about you guys, but every time I think about the military and LSD together, I can't help but think about MK Ultra, which I'm not saying that Berkowitz was MK Ultra, but I guess I'm also not technically saying that he wasn't either. But, you know, there's not enough to say anything one way or the other. But we are talking about recreational LSD use, and I think that he would experiment with some other drugs as well. But he would do, um, to my understanding, his fair share of acid, to say the least. And it was also after this, when he transferred to Fort Knox and after his experimentation with LSD, that he would start attending a Baptist church. And this is when we would see Berkowitz um, kind of make his first pivot to being a fundamentalist type Christian. It's even said that he was preaching from the street corners and everybody... Um, you know, I actually think that he maybe became an intense Christian while he was in Korea, now that I mention it. But everybody who he went to church with said that he seemed to be an amicable fella. Nothing too strange about him. And it's also interesting to note that he would become a Christian despite his Jewish background and upbringing. Both of his um, biological parents, if Joseph Kleinman is his father, are Jewish, and he would be raised in a Jewish home. So him becoming a Christian, much less a Baptist, would be a significant diversion from his upbringing. And then Berkowitz would be discharged from the military in 1974, and then he would begin working as a security guard for IBI Security. And so, once again, it's just interesting to note that he is hopping from one uniform to another. He goes from the army to being a security guard. And so, this is also the same year that Arliss Perry would be murdered on October 12th, 1974, which we will get more into that in our next episode. But something that's kind of just interesting to note is that the person who is now believed to be the killer of Arliss Perry was also a security guard. And October 12th is Aleister Crowley's birthday. A lot of interesting things seem to happen on that. I don't even think that this is the last time this episode that Aleister Crowley's birthday will be brought up. But we're jumping ahead of ourselves. We'll just leave that on the back burner for the time being. But Berkowitz's father and stepmother, um, Julia, would move to Florida in 1975, and his stepsister would make her way to California and do what else than someone moving to California who's into witchcraft in 1975 do, but join a commune. And during this time, Berkowitz is a uh, kind of feeling alone. 
his whole support network has kind of moved away from him. And this is kind of the beginning in the official narrative of the story of his isolation, which although Berkowitz was a strange cat, in reality, he wasn't a complete loner. He did have some friends. He had made some friends in the military, and he would make other friends who we will talk about later on. So Berkowitz isn't um, a complete loner. He's not quiet like the uh, main character in the horror movie Maniac, you know, like (laughs) living in a apartment all by himself talking to mannequins you know or or anything like that he's not quite that level but he is a strange cat and more than anything Berkowitz is just kind of searching for uh, a group to be a part of he wants something to join himself to some be part of something larger than himself and so the next year in February of 1976 Berkowitz would move to an apartment that was more expensive and a greater distance from his school and place of work than the apartment that he had be living at had been living at and the ad, the apartment was advertised only in the Westchester paper which you really wouldn't expect Berkowitz to read the Westchester paper given that he was from the Bronx. So it brings together, um, brings up the question why he would move to this more expensive and less convenient apartment um, that's nowhere near his school or his place of work and how he would even figure out about this apartment. And something interesting about this apartment is that it was owned by a, na- by a man Man, I keep just stumbling over my words today. But what's new? Um, But the apartment was owned by this dude named Jack Casera. And he worked for a company called Neptune Moving Company. And you might go, why am I bringing this up? Well, because a man who Casera worked with at Neptune was this neo-Nazi named Fred Cowan. And Fred Cowan in... uh, neo-nazi fashion would go on to kill six others and then himself after coming back to work from a brief suspension at neptune moving company so now whether berkowitz knew cowan himself there's at least you know he's only one degree of kevin bacon away from this fred cowan guy and you know cowan had all types of interesting tattoos of swastikas and iron crosses and he was a shit brick house of a dude. He is someone who would be casted as a neo-Nazi in a movie. But he was actually the real deal. He owned a great deal of Nazi memorabilia. And yeah, killed seven if you include himself. And something that is interesting is that various news clippings related to all aspects of the Fred Cowan case would be found in the apartment of David Berkowitz. And he would say that he was, quote, one of the sons. So according to Berkowitz, Fred Cowens is is one of the sons of Sam, which I guess you can read that as in, uh, because we will get into the cult aspect and whether or not it was a cult behind the son of Sam attacks. But you could kind of read that two ways. I guess you could say that he was a son of Sam in the spiritual sense, if you want to buy into the lone nut theory of Berkowitz. Or you could say that he was perhaps part of a cult that Berkowitz was a part of. And Berkowitz would reveal during a 1978 interrogation that he had known Cowan personally. So at least according to Berkowitz, 
he knew Fred Cowan, which really wouldn't be all that weird given the fact that he knew Jack Cassara and kind of the weird situation as to why he would move into this apartment that is so inconvenient for him. So it might bring some questions as to who exactly Jack Cassara was or if perhaps he was, you know, just kind of some sort of innocent guy who maybe happened to introduce Berkowitz to Cowan or somehow they met each other through him. But anyways, at least according to Berkowitz, he knew Fred Cowan personally, and Berkowitz would also say that he was one of the sons. And so the next month after Berkowitz had gotten this inconvenient apartment that was more expensive than his prior place of leaving, he would apply for an apartment in Yonkers, which is on the complete opposite side of town. And this is despite that he was just one month into a year-long lease. So... That's pretty strange. So Berkowitz is making all these strange movements that um, really don't make any sense, at least from the official story. I guess unless you want to say that he was just totally nuts, but um, we will kind of get into some of that later. I say that too much. Uh, the next month, he would find himself at 35 Pine Street, this apartment in Yonkers. And so once again, just another move that makes no financial or practical since and then on may 13th of 1976 a neighbor's house would be firebombed and there was all kinds of other weird stuff going on in the neighborhood there was um, threatening letters going around there was dogs being shot at all kinds of bizarre things going on in the old neighborhood and then in june of 1976 he would go to visit his father in florida and he would make a visit to Houston, Texas on his way back. And this is where he would purchase the 44 Bulldog revolver um, from a friend that he made in the army. I think his name was Billy Dan Parker, if I remember correctly. And uh, something interesting to note is that outside of Houston, in a town named Belmont, which is, you know, just right outside of Houston, um, was the ex-wife of John Carr. And just, if you know who John Carr is, good for you. If not, you will know a lot about John Carr by the end of this podcast. But something that's interesting about Beaumont is that according to Henry Lee Lucas, another serial killer who claimed to take part in a satanic cult, this was a place of satanic cult activity, kind of a satanic cult stronghold, um, which a lot to say about Henry Lee Lucas and the hand of death you know uh parts of his story certainly parallel uh david berkowitz story henry lee lucas after he got caught would basically claim that he was a hitman for the hand of death cult that he called it a satanic cult but that is another story for another day but on the month following the purchase of the bulldog revolver july 29th the first son of sam killings would take place but before we get into the Son of Sam killings, just one little interesting thing to mention about the Bulldog Revolver is that it's a it's an interesting gun. It was actually made for a oh what are the names of the like cops that are on airlines who uh, you know make sure that if it's getting hijacked that there's some brass to take care of it. Anyways, these revolvers were made for those guys, so they're supposed to not be able to penetrate through through the fuselage and create problems for the plane, but to create considerable um, 
damage within a short range. So, I don't know, if your plan was to blast people away from, you know, within 20 feet, basically, this would be a perfect gun. That is unless, I don't know, perhaps that would change when he was uh, firing through the windows of cars and, and stuff like that. Perhaps it wouldn't be as good of a gun for that because, you know, anyhow, but just a little bit of an interesting tidbit about the Bulldog revolver that was used in a, in if not all of the shootings, in most of the shootings, or at least the ones that Berkowitz would participate in. But officially, Berkowitz did all the shootings. But enough with all of that official story nonsense. Let's dive deep into what we've all been waiting for, the conspiracy were there multiple shooters? Was there a cult behind it? Who is responsible for the Son of Sam killings? What was Berkowitz's role in the killings? This is the type of questions that we are going to be asking. And so um, what might lead one to believe there was a conspiracy? Well, with Mari Terry, who, as I have stated earlier, that he's going to be one of our main sources for a lot of our information today, and we will eventually assess what we can and can't believe of Mari Terry's investigation into the case. But one of the first things that began to lead him to believe there might be something different than the um, official story of some psychosexual murderer, a lone nut type of guy just going around and blasting people with a 44, is the fact that a lot of the composite sketches, there was multiple different composite sketches um, from multiple different witnesses, and most all of them don't resemble Berkowitz really in any way. And uh, many of them wildly differ from what it is that Berkowitz looks like. And many witnesses to the shootings claimed to have seen the assailant, but the man who they described would look nothing like Berkowitz. And there was also reports of, you know, cars that are used as getaway cars during the crime, which do not fit the description of David Berkowitz's car. And so these are kind of the things initially that would start to perturb Terry because he was a resident of New York City and he began, as many New Yorkers did at the time of the shootings, looking into it and trying to put some pieces together for himself. But the more he looked into it, the more he saw inconsistencies. And according to Mari Terry, the angle that he was initially looking at wasn't that there was a cult or anything like that. He wasn't one to get wrapped up in what some would, you know, demeaningly label satanic panic type stuff um he was just trying to get to the bottom of things and he started noticing these inconsistencies between uh what the police were looking for and uh what witnesses to the scenes and what victims of the shootings were reporting and then he would begin to find all kinds of other oddities going on in the area surrounding these shootings such as all the dogs that were being sacrificed in Untermeyer Park to my recollection, I want to say that they found like 85 dogs that are on 
it's a matter of like open police record. It's something like 80 to 85 dogs were found sacrificed. Some of them skinned. Some of them had their ears cut off and were missing. And it seemed that they had been sacrificed in a ritualistic type fashion. And Untermeyer Park had all kinds of satanic graffiti going on. And there was even a makeshift altar that existed in Untermeyer Park. And something interesting about Untermeyer Park is that, at least according to Terry, Samuel Untermeyer, if I remember the name correctly, who the park is named after, he was a member of, I want to say the OTO, the Ordo Templi Orientis. And so, uh, you know, Terry calls him a Satanist, but I guess depending upon your persuasion that that could be, you know, kind of a conflation with Satanism and other occult practices, you know, I mean, he certainly like wasn't a Levian type Satanist type of dude. But anyways, this Untermeyer guy uh, was interested in the occult. So all very interesting, but we'll go more into the, uh, the whole dog sacrifice angle and stuff as we delve deeper into the cult theory, the satanic cult theory of the shootings. But anyways, um, mainly just the difference in composite sketches and what witnesses are saying they saw and different cars that are being reported at the scene and stuff like this is what starts to tip Terry off to the fact that perhaps there are multiple shooters. And although the official story among the uh, New York PD higher-ups was kind of always looking for a psychosexually motivated killer. There were a lot of beat cops and detectives who thought perhaps that there were multiple shooters, and there was lots of people in the public at the time who thought perhaps there was multiple sh shooters. That's something that uh, Peter Lavenda mentions, another New York resident at the time. Um, of the shootings, you know, said that, you know, kind of the talk on the street was that uh, there were murmurs amongst a lot of people that perhaps there was a more than one perpetrator to these crimes. But anyways, when we are talking about the son of Sam, whether we're talking about the conspiracy angle or whether we are talking about the mainstream angle, um, it's going to be instructive for us to look at the letters that were, one was left at the crime scene and then the other was sent to uh, Jimmy Breslin, a reporter in New York at the time, a crime scene reporter. And so let's take a look at these letters, deconstruct them a little bit and see where that leads us. So to the first letter. On the witching hour of April 17, 1977, four shots would ring out that would claim the lives of Valentina Siriani and Alexander Esau, who were parked in the car of Alexander's brother. And police would find near their bodies a letter written in mostly block capital letters addressed to New York Police Department Captain Joseph Borelli. And the letter reads, I'm deeply hurt by your calling me a women hater. I am not. But I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. Behind our house some rest, mostly young, raped and slaughtered, their blood drained just bones now. Papa Sam keeps me locked in the attic too. I can't get out, but I look out the attic window and watch the world go by. 
I feel like an outsider. I am on a different wavelength than everybody else, programmed to kill. However, to stop me you must kill me. Attention all police. Shoot me first. Shoot to kill or else. Keep out of my way or you will die. Papa Sam is old now. He needs some blood to preserve his youth. He has had too many heart attacks. Too many heart attacks. Ugh, me hoot if it hurts, sonny boy. I miss my pretty princess most of all. She's resting in Our Lady's house, but I'll see her soon. I am the monster, Beelzebub, the chubby behemoth. I love to hunt, prowling the streets looking for fair game, tasty meat. The women of Queens are the prettiest of all. I must be the water they drink. I live for the hunt, my life, blood for Papa. Mr. Borelli, sir, I don't want to kill anyone, no, sir. No more, but I must honor thy father. I want to make love to the world. I love people. I don't belong on earth. Return me to yahoos. To the people of Queens, I love you and want to wish all of you a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and in the next, and for now I say goodbye and good night. Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back. To be interpreted as bang, 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 bang. Ugh. Yours in murder, Mr. Monster. And so, that is the first letter that was, as we said, left at the crime scene where two bodies lay. And um, there's some interesting things going on. So if you hear me pronounce something weird, it's because that is how it is written in the letter. Um, women instead of woman. Something that's kind of interesting is that it is spelled like a demon, but instead of a D, there's a W. So we have women. So perhaps there is um, some sort of significance there. But also... Um, there's mention of Beelzebub, who, as a lot of you guys know, is the Lord of the Flies. I believe that he is mentioned in the Bible. I'm not sure whether that is the Masoretic text or if that is how it's translated in the uh, Septuagint. But Beelzebub is the Lord of the Flies. There's often um, kind of some cross-reference to Satan or something like that. Sometimes he's considered to be a lesser demon in the uh, employ of Satan. And there's also a mention of the behemoth or the chubby behemoth. Um, but behemoth is mentioned in the Masoretic translation of Job, if not in other places in the Bible. But I know that it is mentioned in Job. So the Masoretic text is going to be the Hebrew text. And um, Beelzebub is often depicted as an elephant in demonology. And behemoth is often considered to be like a, a prim evil chaos monster. And he is often paired with Leviathan. So in Jewish mythology, Behemoth is the chaos monster of the earth, while Leviathan is the chaos monster of the sea. And uh, the Latin word for elephant, which, you know, is often depicted as a Behemoth, Behemoth depicted as an elephant, is elephis. So that is the Latin word for elephant, is elephis. And the shooting of Sal Lupo and Judy Placido, which took place in extremely close proximity to a discotheca called Elephus. And so 
you know, we have the chubby behemoth, and we have the word for elephant being elephis, and there would be a son of Sam tuning after this letter took place at the Elephus Discotheca. And so there was um, Sal Lupo and Judy Placido. They were leaving the club. Um, you know, they were dancing to, you know, all those 70 grooves. And then the two would go and they would park outside the club. They were in extremely close proximity. And they would discuss, of all things, the Son of Sam killings right up until they were shot. And once again, this shooting also took place during the witching hour. And the witching hour, for those of you who don't know, is three in the morning. It is often thought of as a time when spirits and demons can be more easily conjured and, you know, come through the veil between our world and the other world. And Eliphas is also pronounced as in the same manner of the ceremonial magician Eliphas Levy, who is the creator of the now infamous artistic rendition of Baphomet. So that black and white drawing of Baphomet with the goat's head, the breast, doing the as above, so below hand sign, um, that was drawn by Eliphas Levy. But the difference between how the Eliphas Club and how Eliphas, as in the Latin word for elephant, is written, and Eliphas Levy is Eliphas, as in the club, or the elephant is E-L-E-P-H-A-S, while Eliphas Levy is E-L-I-P-H-A-S. So there's only a one-letter difference. But something that is also interesting about Eliphas Levy, which kind of just creates a whole other dimension to these parallels that were drawn between um, the letter and things that exist in the case is that Mari Terry in The Ultimate Evil also draws parallels between the Son of Sam symbol that is used in the second letter. So the second letter on the envelope, I believe. No, it wasn't on the envelope. It was in the letter. At the bottom of the letter, um, Son of Sam made a symbol, or whoever wrote this second letter made a symbol for the uh, Son of Sam killings kind of like a sigil if you will a very magical looking symbol that looks strikingly close to the goetic circle of black evocations which can be found in the book of ceremonial magic by a.e waits where he heavily draws upon the works of eliphas levy and it was actually eliphas levy who is the creator of the goetic circle of black evocations and packs so this same symbol that the Son of Sam symbol looks very, very strikingly similar to is, uh, you know, the black evocation of Pax. And so in the uh, book that it's mentioned, the Book of Ceremonial Magic, as we said, it's written by A.E. Waits. And A.E. Waits was a member of the Freemasons. He was also a member of a Rosicrucian sect, as well as being a member of the Order of the Golden Dawn, the secret society that Crowley would be a member of for a period in time. And something that's interesting, if I remember correctly, um, I think Crowley departed from the Golden Dawn because he like wanted more sex magic, some more hardcore stuff than the Golden Dawn had to offer. And so then he would go and um, do some Ordo Templi Orientis type stuff. So anyways, back to the Goetic Circle of Black Evocation and Pax, which, as we said, looks strikingly similar to the Son of Sam symbol. Um, either with this episode or after I create my second episode, I will create a Twitter thread 
where we talk about the Son of Sam shooting. So if it's not already up there by the time that you hear this episode, um, if you don't already follow me on Twitter to where you can see my tweets, I am Thing Observer. So at Thing Observer. And uh, you can see whenever I do put up the thread, I will post a picture of this goetic circle and the Son of Sam symbol next to each other so you guys can get a reference. But if you want to look at the two right now, just look up Son of Sam symbol and look up goetic circle of black evocations and packs. But anyways, um, in the A.E. Waits text, it describes the, um, the symbol and how it is supposed to be used. And so this goetic circle, black evocation impacts, quite the mouthful, um, is used to summon a spirit in Lucifer's hierarchy in order to make a pact with that spirit that you conjure up. And so the, the text describes in detail how to perform this ritual. And in this, once the magician is, you know, f formed this circle, He's going to summon this spirit in Lucifer's hierarchy. And the way that the circle is formed is with human skin and four objects are needed. The skull of someone who killed a parent, the horns of a goat, a male bat that was drowned in blood, and a black cat that has ate human flesh. So um, quite the task to go about creating this circle um, and pretty spooky stuff um you know so um very very creepy and definitely at the darker side of magic definitely black magic there's nothing white in that um even if you're one to uh care to draw the distinction between white and black magic and you think that there's a type of magic that is acceptable um when you need human skin and uh <laughs> You know, the skull of someone who's killed their parents and a black cat that's ate human flesh and you have to drown a bat in blood and get the horns of a goat. Pretty crazy stuff. And so it's a very dark symbol to um, be paralleled so closely with the Son of Sam symbol. And um, surrounding the drawing of this goetic circle are four names. And I did some research into it, but it is... Uh, Hard to figure out what all these four names are mostly in reference to. I believe most of them are referencing fallen angels. And I think most of the fallen angels that they are referencing that are mentioned in, you know, some old text like the Book of Enoch, um, which was found, you know, amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls and some other texts like that ancient text. Um, I think a lot of the times these fallen angels are translated differently today than they were in the days of Eliphas Levy. And um, they wouldn't even have a lot of the text in those days that some of these, uh, you know, fallen angels are known to be referenced in now. But there are only two of these fallen angels that um, surround the drawing of the Goetic Circle by Eliphas Levy that are of importance to us. And those are Amasaric and Berkael. And one can see that the name Berkael bears a resemblance to the last name of Berkowitz. They both start with B-E-R-K. And Berkael, from my limited research, seems to be a fallen angel that is mentioned in the Book of Enoch. And according to mythology in the Book of Enoch and probably some other texts as well, he is the one who taught man astrology. 
Um, you know, and so, you know, fallen angels were angels that were in the hierarchy of angels as, you know, created by God and either it be the Jewish or Christian version of it. And they rebelled and they, you know, are now for all intents and purposes, a demon. And Amasarak can be construed as an anagram for the name Sam Carr. And as you most likely recall, Sam Carr is the owner of the dog who, in the initial version of, that Berkowitz would tell, because he would change his story um, a few different times, but in the initial story that Berkowitz said during his first 30-minute interrogation, Sam Carr is the Sam mentioned in the letters. And he, you know, claimed that it would be his black lab Harvey who would, you know, command him to kill. So all very interesting stuff. And now that we are finished with the first letter, that brings us to the second letter. So on May 30th of 1977, Jimmy Breslin, who was a crime reporter for the Daily News, would receive a handwritten letter which had the words blood and family darkness and death, absolute depravity, 44, written on the back of the envelope, or it might have been on the back of the letter itself. Either way, let's take a look at what the letter reads. Hello from the gutters of New York City, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of New York City, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. Hello from the cracks in the sidewalks of New York City, and from the ants that dwell in these cracks, and feed on the dry blood of the dead that has settled into the cracks. JB, I'm just dropping you a line to let you know that I appreciate your interest in those recent and horrendous 44 killings. I also want to tell you that I read your column daily, and I find it quite informative. Tell me, Jim, what will you have for July 29th? You can forget about me if you like because I don't care for publicity. However, you must not forget Donna Loria, and you cannot let the people forget her either. She was a very, very sweet girl, but Sam's a thirsty lad, and he won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood. Mr. Breslin, sir, don't think that because you haven't heard from me for a while that I went to sleep. No, rather, I am still here, like a spirit roaming the night, thirsty, hungry, seldom stopping to rest, anxious to please Sam. I love my work. Now the void has been filled. Perhaps we shall meet face to face someday, or perhaps I will be blown away by cops with smoking 38s. Whatever. If I shall be fortunate enough to meet you, I will tell you all about Sam if you like and I will introduce you to him. His name is Sam the Terrible. Not knowing what the future holds, I shall say farewell and I will see you at the next job, or should I say you will see my handiwork at the next job. Remember Miss Loria, thank you. In their blood and from the gutter, Sam's creation, 44. Here are some names to help you along. Forward them to the inspector for use by NCIC. The Duke of Death, the Wicked King Wicker, the Twenty-Two Disciples of Hell, John Wheaties, Rapist and Suffocator of Young Girls. P.S. Please inform all the detectives working the slang to remain. P.S. 
JB, please inform all the detectives working the case that I wish them the best of luck. Keep, keep them digging. Drive on. Think positive. Get off your butts. Knock on coffins, etc. Upon my capture, I promise to buy all the guys working the case a new pair of shoes if I can get up the money. Son of Sam. Something's happened, don't speak too soon I told the boss off and made my move Got nowhere to go Son of Sam, son of the shining Bad, the clouded night A couple killer each and every time Not uncomfortable, feeling weird Lonely weird options disappear But I know what to do Son of Sam, son of a doctor's touch A nurse's love Acting under orders from above So those are the two Son of Sam letters. And anyways, uh, a lot to take in there. But now let's dive into the Carr family. And the letters are going to be very important to the rest of our investigation as we talk about the Carr family. So once again, just try to keep in mind everything that we just heard from those letters and one thing, just as long as we're on the subject of the letters before we dive deep into the Carr family and see what all we can figure out, is that 
I think perhaps you'll disagree, but maybe you'll um, agree with me. Maybe you'll have some thoughts of your own, which is always good, is that I think that the second letter is kind of written better than the first letter. I think that it has more literary value, so to speak. Um, think that the second person has a better all uh, a tone in that he uh, delivers his message more effectively in that it's just written better, better prose. So um, anyways, now on to the Carr family. So we've already mentioned Sam Carr. He is the patriarch of the Carr family. And he had two sons, John Carr and Michael Carr, and both of them will figure prominently into the rest of our investigation. And really just both the rest of this episode and the next episode when we continue to talk about the son of Sam Colt. And as you guys will have remembered, um, Sam is the Sam that is being referenced in the letter, at least according to Berkowitz um, at first, and he is the one who has the black lab named Harvey, who in Berkowitz's first rendition of the story is, you know, has a demon inside the dog who is commanding him to kill. And so this is the Sam car that we are talking about. But if that is the Sam that is talking about, maybe we should literally look at the sons of Sam. And, you know, perhaps there are more sons of Sam, but these are the only sons of Sam who are related by blood. Or maybe I should say more that these are the only um, sons of Sam who are bio biologically related, because there might be more sons of Sam who are bound together through blood. But anyhow, um, so Sam Carr, two sons, John and Michael Carr. And the letter, you know, says some pretty not desirable stuff about Sam, that he locks his kids in the attic or in the garage, and that he has a thirst for blood. And it's interesting to note that Sam Carr in real life was said to be a mean man. And Kevin Murphy, who is now a retired Yonkers detective, but um, was a Yonkers detective at the time, said of Sam Carr, I heard stories that Sam was very miserable, you know. Nobody had a nice word from him that I saw. A hard disciplinarian. I heard he really abused the boys. He would beat them. He would lock them in the attic sometime as punishment. Which is very interesting. You will recall in the letter that the letter is written from the perspective of someone who lives with Sam and that Sam locks them in the attic and all of that so very interesting and as you also will likely recall in the letter sent to Jimmy Breslin we'll just read this real briefly once again just to really let it sink in when father Sam gets drunk he gets mean he beats his family sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house other times he locks me in the garage Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. Behind our house some rest. Mostly young, raped, and slaughtered. Their blood drained. Just bones now. Papa Sam keeps me locked in the attic, too. I can't get out, but I look out the attic window and watch the world go by. I feel like an outsider. I am on a different wavelength than everybody else. Programmed to kill. 
And also, how interesting is it that it says program to kill? That is, you know, I'm sure where Dave McGowan got the title for his program to kill book series, which I'm sure most all the listeners of this show are familiar with. I know that a lot of you guys come from the program to chill podcast orbit with Jimmy Fallon Gong. And uh, so, yeah, I'm sure most all of you, if you haven't read it, are at least familiar with what Program to Kill is and the work of Dave McGowan and kind of the general thesis of Program to Kill, which is that a lot of the times these serial killers are part of larger cults and connected to intelligence or that the cults that they're involved with are have ties to intelligence and it's kind of like some form of like a domestic phoenix program that is going on but anyways back to the cars because um even though this is related we are not here to talk directly about program to kill but anyhow so we can see in those two letters the uh similarity between what people were saying of sam carr and how he punished his children's and how that could relate to the letters especially given that it's written in the first person as someone who lives with sam and so john carr would eventually be mentioned by berkowitz as one of the members of the satanic cult behind the murders because berkowitz while he would start off with the whole demon dog story he would eventually change his story into that there was a satanic cult that was involved in the murders and that he was involved with this satanic cult and while he carried out either two or three of the murders um, in this version of his story, that uh, there were other murders that other people committed, but that they all belong to the same cult. Um, so anyways, let's not get too much ahead of ourselves, but who is this John Carr who eventually Berkowitz would mention as being one of the members of this satanic cult? Well, John was born in 1946, and he shares the same birthday as Aleister Crowley, October 12th. So very interesting, Aleister Crowley's birthday, John Carr's birthday, and the day that Arliss Perry would die. And so some very interesting stuff going on with that date. Although I'm not blaming John Carr, you know, I mean, you can't control what day you were born, but it's interesting to point out. And John Carr would go to Holy Rosary Grammar Grammar School. And so I guess the Catholic education did not um, do much for him later in life, and he would also attend a Catholic school for his freshman year of high school, but he would ultimately finish his high school career at Gorton High, and he would enroll in college, but he would leave to join the Air Force, where he would work for 12 years until he was discharged on the day after his birthday in 1976, October 13th, and so This was allegedly for disciplinary reasons, and allegedly it had something to do with drugs, but I don't think it is exactly known why he was discharged. But nonetheless, he was discharged from the Air Force. And at the time of his discharge, he was a staff sergeant, and he specialized in aircraft maintenance. And so, you know, that's not like a nothing position. I mean, it's not to say that he was like a brigadier general or anything like that. But um, Carr had been stationed at a multitude of places. He had been stationed in Thailand for a time, Korea, the same place that Berkowitz was stationed, although they were in different branches, uh, Panama City, uh, and then Florida before he would wind up at the Strategic Air Force Command Base, um, the Strategic Air Command Base um, with the Air Force outside Minot, North Dakota in 1972. So two years later in 1974, 
John and his wife at the time he was married would divorce and they had a daughter together but a lot of his friends would say that this is kind of what would precipitate his downfall and what would really um, lead to his deterioration in his mental state and his former wife would head for Beaumont, Texas which as we stated was right outside where Berkowitz would go and buy the 44 from his old army buddy and Beaumont was also cited by Henry Lee Lucas as being a site for uh, a cult satanic uh, stronghold of sorts and so Carr, after his divorce, he would start to go on his downward spiral. He would use pot, psychedelics, coke, angel dust, crystal, uh, you name it. He probably did it at the time, and he was also a heavy drinker. And this was something that would actually lead Berkowitz to conclude that he was the weak link in the cult because of his drug and alcohol issues. And police in North Dakota would say that he dealt drugs and his friends would also admit to him dealing drugs and there is theorizing that he possibly dealt drugs in new york because uh john carr was you know would do a lot of bouncing back and forth between Minot, north dakota and new york where his father sam lived and he would undergo drug therapy and psychiatric counseling. He would be prescribed Haldol, which is for people with schizoaffective disorders, a lot of the times used to treat schizophrenia. And he would be exhibiting all kinds of strange behaviors, um, according to his friends and to his girlfriend after the divorce of his wife, Linda O'Brien, I believe her name is. So shortly after the Berkowitz arrest, John Carr would make himself hard to find and uh, not really on the run, but essentially on the run. He was trying to keep a low profile and Maury Terry was hard at work trying to find him. And while Terry was getting close to John, um, this would actually happen right after Maury Terry would find John Carr's vehicle at Sam Carr's house, I believe, and it was a snowy day, and he would brush the snow off his license plate, and then he would have a friend run the license plate, and he would figure out that that was John Carr's license plate. And shortly after this, so Maury Terry's closing in on John Carr. He's just figuring out that he is somewhere in North Dakota, and then John Carr would supposedly commit suicide. And in the month before he was found dead, John told his friends in Minot that he was leaving for New York and that he would not be back for months. But after being in Yonkers for only 10 days, he would leave his car at his father's house and fly back to Minot, North Dakota. And two nights after he flew back home, he was found dead. So on February 16th, uh, John Carr would be found a 30-30 Marlin rifle would have was fired into John's mouth and it decimated his skull and the rifle would be found resting on his leg there was no suicide note and we will just take a look at a quote from the ultimate evil by Mari Terry that um, real succinctly describes some of the oddities about this suicide so I will be reading for a second apologies if the quote is a little bit long but I think that it will summarize 
things a little bit better than I could. And why would I bother to come up with a summary of things when we can just get it in a better worded fashion from Mari Terry? So this is from The Ultimate Evil for all of those who want to delve deeper into this. And if you want to learn um, about a lot of the stuff I'm talking about and get some greater detail for some of the things I'm talking about, check out The Ultimate Evil by Mari Terry. So it reads... The, re the reconstruction of the scene and events immediately preceding John Carr's demise strongly suggested he was murdered. The position of the body and that of the gun were prominent factors, but there were others. For instance, Carr's actions on February 15th, the day before he died, were decidedly not those of a man contemplating suicide. He rented a postal box, opened a checking account at a local bank, and visited the Air Force to ensure continuing payment of a disability check he was receiving because of a service-connected injury. He took each of these steps within 24 hours after returning from New York, from where he told Linda O'Connor the police were hot on his trail. Linda O'Connor, not Linda O'Brien, sorry, Linda O'Connor. Um, the police were hot on his trail. Next, on the night of his death, February 16th, he received a phone call at Linda O'Connor's home before she went out for the evening, but he didn't reveal the identity of the 8 p.m. caller to her. When Linda returned at about 12.30 a.m., she saw that her two Irish settler dogs were outside the house. They should have been inside. She also said that a latch lock on the inside of the front door had been turned to open it. An unnecessary action. John Carr, Linda said, knew the door could be opened from the inside without turning the latch. Linda also said that Carr was in good spirits before she left and that he told her he would wash the dinner dishes. But the dishes were left half done in the sink, as if Carr was interrupted while washing them. The daily newspaper was also missing from the home, and she reported finding a single glove, neither hers nor Carr's, in the residence. Linda further stated that she borrowed some money from Carr's wallet, leaving several bills in it, yet the wallet was empty when Gardner went through it. For years, Carr had worn a good luck charm he'd acquired overseas, a rubbing Buddha, which was on a chain around his neck, but this artifact wasn't on the body and was missing from the house, as was a picture of his daughter Carr kept in his wallet. Linda O'Connor also said that she found a spot of blood under a living room table the next morning. Gardner, however, said he saw no such blood when he examined the premises the night before. The rifle contained no fingerprints, not even smudges. It was as if it had been wiped clean. At my request, Dr. Lewis Rowe, the deputy medical examiner of Westchester County, examined the car autopsy report. On the basis of the powder burns on Carr's inner mouth and palate, as described in the autopsy report, Rowe said he believed the gun had been inserted deeper into the mouth than normally would occur in a suicide of this type. Combined, these elements pointed to murder. Rowe's opinion supported Sinodi's and my evaluation of the case, which held that an unconscious or semi-conscious car was propped up and the gun forced into his mouth. Linda O'Connor would later tell a friend that she believed Carr was silenced because he knew too much. Berkowitz himself would label him the weakest link because of his drug and alcohol problems. And also something to mention about the John Carr death was that there were smudges of blood on the walls that appeared to have been there prior to the shooting taking place so perhaps you know some other injury had already been inflicted upon him say that he had been knocked out or something so that way you could position him to uh then kill him and make it look like a suicide but perhaps the most interesting uh thing from the suicide 
alleged suicide of John Carr are these two facts, that on the baseboard, it appeared as if someone scrawled a message in blood that read NYSS, and Terry um, comes up with the hypothesis that possibly this could stand for New York Son of Sam. And there also appeared to be, according to Terry, a 666 scratched onto John's hand when they took the initial images of the crime scene and you know, blew it up to uh, make it larger to where you could investigate the picture more. But I looked online for pictures of the murder, and there's a scene of the suicide in The Ultimate Evil, but it is not discernible in those pictures whether or not you can see this 666. But whether, um, I mean, if that is the case, that is surely spooky, and uh, it would be hard to believe that, you know, John Carr did this, especially considering that I believe, if I recall correctly, the 666 was, you know, scratched into the drying blood of his hand. So like that he would shoot himself and and then do that or that he would shoot himself or, you know, create some sort of injury that wouldn't have shown up on the autopsy. Um, you know, that like maybe he collected blood and wrote a letter on the baseboard and blood or whatever. Anyways, all very strange and can point to uh, the fact that possibly this wasn't a suicide. Also combined with the timing that this happened to occur right after, uh, you know, Mari Terry was on his case and that investigators were, you know, on their way to looking into Carr's relation to the son of Sam case. And if you can hear my dog honking in the background... I apologize. She's making little piggy noises. Um, I actually found a Son of Sam style note the uh, earlier this morning written by Josie where she says that Father Luke locks her in the house and that she watches life pass by from the, the window and that Father Luke takes the hose to her and soaps her up about once every three months or so i don't bathe her all that much so um i don't know i'm kind of concerned about josie so if i mysteriously end up missing it was most likely um some intelligence agency or my dog um because i'm not connected to any cults um you know we talked in the last episode about me potentially starting the cult of the thing observers but currently not a member of any cult. So I would first investigate the CIA, and if not, investigate Josie. She is a Cane Corso. She is, if we are, um, you know, breed profiling, she's a Cane Corso, all black. Um, currently has a chain collar, so be on the lookout for her. But anyways, let's get back to the story. So um, what led Terry to believe that John Carr may have been involved in this cult prior to Berkowitz's admission of this? Um, you know, because some people say that, you know, Berkowitz changing his story to this whole John and Michael Carr and cult thing is due to the ultimate evil. And Terry's looking into this because Terry put together the ultimate evil before Berkowitz truly changed his story Um to um 
the satanic cult aspect, or at least as heavily as he did. As we said, um, Berkowitz's story has kind of shifted a little bit, but we will get into that later on and some of the reasons that Berkowitz maybe would have lied to begin with, you know, possibly to ensure his own safety or whatever. I mean, according to Berkowitz, the cult, you know, would take pictures of your of your family, you know, and basically to ensure that you don't uh, try and dissent and that if you do that, you know, uh, that it's not only you that we can kill, but that we can go after your family. But anyways, uh, so what, you know, led Terry to believe John Carr may have been involved in this cult? Well, John went by the nickname Wheaties and entered into a phone book at the time of the murders um, was a John Wheat car who lived around the corner from where Berkowitz had lived. And as you most likely remember, the cars lived just around the corner from Berkowitz. And in the second letter, the author gives some names to help the case along. You know, remember when he lists the Duke of Death, the Wicked King Wicker, the 22 Disciples of Hell, and John Wheaties, Rapist and Suffocator of Young Girls. And, you know, we have a John Carr with the nickname Wheaties. It would seem as if he could very potentially be this John Wheaties who is mentioned. And another thing is it says that he's a rapist and suffocator of young girls. And when investigators and Mari Terry were talking to people in Minot, North Dakota, there was multiple people who said that there was various times where John Carr had uh, had relationships with, I want to say, girls who were like 14 to 15 years old, underage girls. So, um, you know, no mention of, you know, rape and suffocation of young girls, but um, there's at least a couple people who claimed that John Carr had a proclivity for underage girls. And Berkowitz basically said, like, you don't even want to hear John Wheaties talk about his, uh, you know, uh, fascinations and his uh, different sexual proclivities, you know, kind of hinting to the fact that uh, it was pretty debauched, if you will. So um, all this tipped off Terry, and then Terry would hear this from Berkowitz, but it wasn't until some officials in Minot began to take interest in the case and began to share their information with Terry that there would become some real confirmation of this that began to take place. Terry first learned of the information coming out of North Dakota from a reporter named Jeff Nyes, who would relay some of the information that he had heard from the police in North Dakota. And so mainly that information was, A, that John Carr was involved with Berkowitz, and B, that he was a member of a satanic cult. And the police said that they had even sent this information to New York prior to Berkowitz pleading guilty, but the people in New York didn't really seem to want to have anything to do with it because, as you guys probably know, they had caught the man that they believed to be behind the son of Sam murders, you know, and so uh, they were treating it as, you know, case closed or at least the higher ups in the nypd you know there were some individual cops and detectives who weren't buying that hook line and sinker but uh sheriff investigator glenn getson would tell the minot daily news a local newspaper in minot north dakota new york told us Carr was wanted for questioning i viewed him as a devil worshiper who blew himself away rather than get caught and uh so getson <laughs> 
you know, very to the point. Um, he would also say that he found tarot cards and occult artwork and posters in his home that included inverted crosses and serpents. And Kenneth Zajic, another sheriff investigator, would report to his superiors in regards to John Carr that he had, and I am quoting here, contacted the Minot, North Dakota Police Department, speaking to Lieutenant Hendrickson, who revealed to me that John C. Carr was in fact found dead in their jurisdiction, and that it was being carried as a homicide, possible suicide, but was not classified as a suicide as of this writing. He further stated that the Ward County Sheriff Department was investigating the case. He informed me that a Detective Getson was working on the case. I then spoke to Deputy Lynn Howe, who related to me that John C. Carr was the victim of a homicide, as yet not classified as suicide, and that their investigation into the case was continuing. He did, however, inform me that they were in possession of written statements from friends of John C. Carr, in which John Carr allegedly told them he was friends of David Berkowitz, and he knew him personally for a long time. Also at this time, the writer Zajic was informed that Detective Getson had interviewed the psychiatrist who was treating John C. Carr, who listed Carr as a paranoid schizophrenic and made statements to Detective Getson of his problems. Detective Getson also ascertained that John C. Carr made during therapies drawings of David Berkowitz's home, apartment, etc. So there were also in memos that Zajic had written where he stated that John's girlfriend had attested to John knowing Berkowitz and others and also said that John knew Berkowitz personally and that he was paranoid believing that the authorities were after him in relation to the Son of Sam case. So uh, this is all some pretty crazy stuff that is coming out of North Dakota. And again, I will read real briefly from Mari Terry um, just in order to stay concise. Um, Counselor Lee Slaughter said, John told me he looked up to Berkowitz because Berkowitz wasn't afraid to do anti-establishment things. He told me they used to bum around together in Yonkers, but something had happened between them. There was bad blood between them after a while. This statement supported Berkowitz's Marcy comment when he said he hated John Carr. And Marcy is the psychiatric facility where Berkowitz was held at for a time and where he was interviewed. And that's what um, Terry's referring to. But anyways, Slaughter added that Carr had a tremendous amount of detailed knowledge of the 44 shootings, like the kind of cars the victims were in and things like that. He said he knew more about the Son of Sam case than the police did. He also alluded to being at crime scenes, but his inference was subtle. He didn't actually say he was. Slaughter then said, I told all this to a New York detective who called me and asked me about John shortly after his death. I don't remember the detective's name. Phil Falcone made a significant statement. He never called him David or Dave. I didn't know it was Berkowitz. He just used to talk about his friend Berkey in Yonkers. So, as Berkowitz knew Carr's nickname, so did Carr know Berkowitz, one of which was in fact Berkey. And so that is the end of that quote. But um, there was a, I think they might have been a couple, I'm not sure, but there were two individuals, Tom Taylor and a Darlene Christensen. And they would say that they saw John Carr draw the, you know, the son of Sam symbol, the one that we talked about earlier that looks like the uh, black evocation and packed, uh, you know, thing that was drawn by Eliphas Levy. And I guess I need to plug in my laptop real quick. It's saying that's going to die on me. All right, let's see if that does the trick. 
and it appears as if it did. Oh man, hopefully uh, got a virus protection thing. We'll see if that showed up on the audio. But anyways, uh, they said that they saw John Carr draw the Son of Sam graphic symbol on the back of a telephone directory. And this was in February of 1977. So that was four months prior to it first appearing in the public letter to Jimmy Breslin. You know, the letter we talked about earlier. So uh, we've got all kinds of interesting stuff. You know, we've got that John Carr knows David Berkowitz. We've got that he knows all these intimate facts about the case. He's drawing the Son of Sam symbol on telephone directories before the symbol was ever made public. And uh, Carr would also write a letter to his girlfriend's husband, which, uh, what a cuck. Um, Writing a letter to his girlfriend's husband that was not a threatening letter or anything, but it was being appreciative because I guess... uh, Linda O'Connor's husband was accepting of uh, his relationship with John Carr. So I don't know if they were still technically married but hadn't separated or if they were together and that was just cool with him. But anyways, uh, pretty funny writing a poem to your girlfriend's husband, you know, being thankful of him. But what I bring this up for is not just because it's funny, which it is, but because the letter is nearly verbatim, um, the poem um, that Berkowitz would send to his downstairs neighbor, Craig Glassman. And both Craig Glassman, Berkowitz's downstairs neighbor, and Linda O'Connor's husband shared the name of Craig. But when Berkowitz would um, steal this poem, or supposedly it was Berkowitz would steal this poem idea um, from John Carr, assuming that it wasn't John Carr who wrote to Craig Glassman for some reason, he would basically just invert the meaning of this poem. So initially the poem was um, nice, but really only a few words are changed in the poem to make it a more sinister meaning. But we'll go ahead and read the Berkowitz version of the poem because, you know, we're going for the spooky here. We're going for the scary now that Halloween is approaching us. So the poem reads... Because Craig is Craig, so must the streets be filled with Craig, death, and huge drops of lead poured down upon her head until she was dead. Yet the cats still come out at night to mate, and the sparrows still sing in the morning. So that is kind of an ominous letter that Craig Glassman would receive that bears more than just a resemblance to the poem that John Carr had written it's got that whole thing about the sparrows still singing in the morning to my knowledge and it said you know the the whole craig is craig business <laughs> but anyways um a minot investigator would say that he was told by car himself that uh he that car was involved in satanic rituals and that that the rituals involved drinking urine from a chalice pretty lovely stuff um and a minot police officer named michael noop had uncovered evidence of some sort of satanic cult in the Minot area while working as an undercover drug informant. Um, so we have an admission by Carr that he's um, to a police officer that he was involved with some sort of satanic rituals. And I believe that this is when Carr got picked up for some sort of drug-related thing. He would also have, um, I want to say, three, maybe just a couple overdoses. Um, during the period between, I want to say, 1976 to 1977, when he was kind of on his downward spiral 
Um, so anyways, Carr's sister would even tell Queen's investigators that Carr was involved in the occult. And so here's the quote from Carr's sister. John's involvement in the occult, uh, I'm not going to deny. There's no way I could deny it. It'd be stupid to deny it. So, um, anyways, we have, you know, John Carr's sister saying that he was involved with the occult. Um, Carr supposedly told a police officer himself that he was involved with the occult. But perhaps the uh, most damning or the most interesting, if we can believe it, is um, the testimony of a friend of John Carr, Phil Falcone. So we will once again read from The Ultimate Evil, summarizing what it is that Phil Falcone said about John Carr. So this is from The Ultimate Evil. But perhaps the most graphic description of Carr's cult activities came from his dark-haired Indian friend, Phil Falcone. In a recorded interview with me, Nyes and Lack Graham of the Minot Daily News, Falcone said, he kept a list of the demons of hell on him, and to gain power over people, to put a curse on them, he'd go out and bury shit on their lawns. He thought this was some black magic curse. He was a Satanist. These demons he kept a list of, would they include Behemoth and Beelzebub? I asked. Those were two of them. In this excrement, was it dog manure? Yeah. This information provided two more links between Carr and the son of Sam Letters. Falcone went on to say that Carr belonged to cults in both Minot and Westchester County, New York, an important confirmation of our suspicions. He described the New York group as a very violent, large, and underground group. They were really into the occult. They'd all get together in like witches' covens, a witches' church. Their sacrifices went all the way. Falcone said the Westchester group convened both indoors and outdoors, and at least one of its meeting sites was pretty close to Carr's house. This fit the description of Untermeyer Park, but Falcone couldn't recall the exact location. He described an indoor site also which we remembered as being an attachment to someone's home or business. He added that he thought that there were other locations too, but said he knew nothing about them. At the time, we didn't think Falcone meant witches' churches literally. It would later turn out to be just that. Falcone said that John Carr was very much into Satanism and that John read my entire collection of occult books, from How to Make Amulets to the Third Eye. Carr, Falcone said, practiced some satanic rituals in Minot with Donnie Boone, whom Falcone didn't know was dead. I came to my house and there were Johnny, John and Donnie. Falcon explained in describing one ritual, When I walked in the door, they were in the kitchen, and John had this animal. Whatever it was, he had cut its throat, and it was bleeding all over the kitchen. He was going to take it into the other room there. There was a magic circle drawn, and they were sacrificing it. Old Donnie Boone was drinking the animal's blood. It was running down his chin. Falcon said he put a stop to the ritual and threw Carr and Boone out of his house. It was an unbelievable mess to clean up. If Falcon knew out of their other details about cult activity in Minot or Westchester, he didn't disclose them. He acknowledged his own occult interests, but avoided saying whether or not he participated in any sacrificial rituals himself. As Gardner noted, several German shepherds were found slain behind Falcone's coffee shop, although there is no evidence that Falcone himself was involved in the death of those dogs. The coffee shop was a regular hangout for Carr, Boone, and others involved in the Satan scene. So, um... 
certainly very interesting. And we also have the parallel between all these German shepherds that are being sacrificed in Untermeyer Park and in the overall just, you know, New York area. There was tons of dogs, mostly German shepherds in Alsatians, um, which, you know, kind of a call back to the process church, but um, we'll get into them later. But, uh, you know, we also have German shepherds which are being found sacrificed in Minot, North Dakota. So, uh, very interesting. It doesn't seem to be that common of a thing to, uh, you know, sacrifice German shepherds. And, you know, it does, wouldn't make sense, you know, why exactly you would have all these German shepherds being um, sacrificed in two disparate places, you know, um, unless there was some sort of... Uh, cult or group or belief system that kind of united these uh some people in these areas you know to a to a common cause and uh you know we'll get more into why german shepherds and just the whole german shepherd aspect of the story in a little bit but just wanted to fill y'all in if you didn't already know um just based off of that and uh you know, I mentioned the Process Church rule briefly, which we'll get more into. But if you haven't listened to it, you can check out my two-part episodes on the Process Church. Those were the last two episodes because the Process Church will end up becoming a part of our Son of Sam investigation. And also whenever we get to talking about Charles Manson and the Ed Sanders book, The Family.
So we have it here that John Carr was, you know, he supposedly knew Berkowitz. He was involved with satanic stuff. We have this Falcone guy saying that he belonged to a satanic cult that belonged to both Westchester and Minot, North Dakota. And uh, that we have dogs being sacrificed, specifically German shepherds. We have him dealing drugs and involved with all kinds of other crimes. So very interesting. And we also relayed how John Carr relates to the whole Son of Sam letters. So now, there wasn't only one Carr brother, but there were two. So let's go ahead and talk about Michael Carr for just a little bit. So Michael Carr. Michael, Michael, Michael. So, you know, Sam Carr had two biological sons, and one of these was Michael. And he may very well have been Berkowitz's whole introduction into the dark, scary world of the occult. And so um, Terry cites an anonymous source close to Berkowitz who said that, you know, one evening, it was a, a balmy evening in 1975, um, Berkowitz went outside to enjoy the evening air outside his Barnes Avenue apartment building, and he would be um, introduced to, a, not introduced, but he would meet an individual named Michael Carr who would approach him and, um, you know, Michael Carr was also trying to soak up the evening breeze, and they began a chat. And as casual chats sometimes do, it devolved into topics of the spiritual. And also, sometimes even more rare than chats like that going into the uh, spiritual side of things, it started to go into the occult and mystical side of things. And so this sidewalk casual conversation, you know, quickly turned into a conversation about God satan mysticism and reincarnation and this is when michael you know allegedly invited berkowitz to come join him at a party that he had stepped outside of so he had been at a party but you know he steps outside to you know enjoy the evening for just a little bit he meets berkowitz and invites berkowitz up to this party and this anonymous source there where terry is getting this information from says that the uh, party was a floating coven party which i looked into what the hell a floating coven party is and i couldn't figure out you know what exactly that is all that it makes me think of is that movie the craft where they have the you know girls who get into witchcraft and you know then it doesn't turn out to be exactly as they expected um you know but it reminds me of the scene where they're doing the light as a feather stiff as a board light as a feather stiff as a board you know where you have um the the group you know put a couple fingers underneath uh, an individual while they're lying on the ground and you know close your eyes and chant light as a feather stiff as a board and apparently you know they they start to to float or something um i i don't know if that's a real game that people play i'm assuming after that movie there's some uh some girls some you know tumblr witches who gave it a try but anyhow yeah i tried to look into this floating coven party couldn't find it um berkowitz relays a story that's similar to this but a little bit different to my recollection in an interview that he did with Mari Terry that was um, posted on Inside Edition. It was televised on Inside Edition, and you can find it on YouTube. 
And what rules about this is I've watched it, and um, what's really fun about it is it's got all the commercials from, like, uh, I want to say that this was, like, the early 90s when this came out, but it's got all the commercials with it, so you can uh, you can just put it on the TV, and it really just feels like a, a blast from the past. Not that I was even, you know, watching TV back during the time of this. I don't even think I was born during the time of this. Revealing too much, now you guys are going to be able to figure out that I'm a youngin, and you're not going to respect me the same. I mean, I demand respect and complete fealty to uh, all my podcast listeners. If you don't believe every word I say, what good are you? Just kidding. Always question me. Question everything. But uh, anyhow, yeah, it's very fun to watch because, you know, you get to just see all the uh, goofy commercials that are on there, you know, like for like old Sylvester Stallone movies and from like Sizzler Steakhouse and all types of crazy stuff, you know. Uh, they have the double sirloin dinner for just $9, you know. You can't get beef at that price anymore. Not with all these artificial shortages. Thanks, Joe Biden. Just kidding. I'm getting off topic. I'm goofing around. But what we are talking about is uh, Michael Carr and Berkowitz's supposed introduction to him you know so berkowitz had the supposed witch sister maybe she was playing light as a feather stiff as a board who um you know maybe kind of introduced him to some occult ideas but you know this is really um when you know according to berkowitz and some others also according to terry that he would really get into the occult and as terry puts it this is when the 44 bulldog was symbolically placed in berkowitz's hands so uh, Berkowitz's relationship to Michael, according to Terry, is also what makes sense of a lot of his bizarre movements from the Bronx to New Rochelle to his place on Pine Street in Yonkers. Um, you know, and Michael lived only 200 yards behind 35 Pine Street. So, you know, you have Casera get him the apartment and uh, you have Fred Cowan, the neo-Nazi. And then, you know, at his next place, he's 200 yards away from uh <laughs> Michael Carr so uh very interesting perhaps makes some sense of his movements um but Berkowitz while at a psychiatric center in Marcy which we already briefly uh, mentioned would not only finger John Carr as a Satanist but he would also say that Michael Carr was a Satanist and just as John Carr would show up dead after investigators began to close in on him Michael would have what Terry describes as a rendezvous with infinity when he would plow into a street light when he was driving like 75 miles an hour down a washed out cobblestone road that you know basically anybody with half a brain would know to be cautious on and Michael Carr's sister and others who knew him basically said that he was a pretty cautious driver he was not the type to drive fast and another thing that is odd is that it had been over three years since he had touched alcohol but he had a blood alcohol level that um, would mean that he was intoxicated um, after they did the autopsy on him um, but, you know, alcoholics do relapse sometime, and um, this was, you know, happening shortly after one of the people Terry had interviewed in Minot, North Dakota. Um, perhaps it was Linda O'Connor. Don't want to besmirch the good O'Connor name if that's not true, but one of these people who um, had been talked to about John Carr's relationship to the son of Sam Case in North Dakota 
gave Michael Carr a ring, and they said that they didn't think that it was, you know, any big deal. You know, they weren't, like, trying to tip him off, supposedly. But anyways, Michael Carr got wind that they were looking into this stuff and that they had questions about his brother. And it was shortly after this when he would uh, get into this fatal car accident. So, you know, obviously this brings about questions of whether he was ran off the road, whether he, you know... Um, was you know had his drink spiked uh whether he was just drunk because he heard that police were investigating and he had a relapse and he had an accident or maybe he just relapsed because he relapsed and you know it was um all an accident and there's nothing more to see here folks but i guess we won't really ever get to know because um we can't ask john carr or michael carr either one any more questions not unless you want to get into some spooky seance shit which i strongly advise against and in my belief system i don't think it's probably going to be michael carr or john carr that you're hearing from um probably going to be some demons you're talking to but that's neither here nor there that's not what we're talking about right now um so, you know, it just seems like, you know, there's a certain type of person who has a knack for dying. If you, say, stumble into some damning information about the Clintons, or if you make an allegation against Kevin Spacey, or maybe you're flying on a plane, you know, while you're working on the Franklin scandal, or, you know, say that you're named Jeffrey Epstein and you're in a prison cell. Um, or, you know, you say that um, you're named by Berkowitz as one of the sons of Sam. It seems like those are all pretty good ways to uh, get yourself dead real fast. So I would advise against that. So, who exactly was Michael Carr? Well, Michael Vale Carr III was born in 1952, which made him only a year older than Berkowitz, and he would graduate from the Rochester Institute of Technology and Photography, and he would work as a photographer and a graphics illustrator, and he would make some friends with some, you know, some high-level professional photographers, um, and it was also said that he enjoyed the Manhattan disco scene and the gay scene as well. Um, and Michael Carr, much like his brother, he would have some struggles with substance abuse as well. He liked his drugs and his alcohol, um, but that was until he found Scientology. And he would quickly make his way up the ranks. Ooh, what happened to me there? I think I had a stroke. Not really. Don't worry about me, guys. Um, but he would quickly make his way up the ranks. He would become kind of like a mid-level member of the Church of Scientology. But, you know, nothing to sneeze at in the Scientology world. Um, but his um, interests weren't restricted only to the teachings of L. Ron Hubbard or, um, you know, the Church of Scientology. But he also, by many accounts, had an interest in the occult and devil worship. So we will read another excerpt from Terry discussing the relationship between Michael Carr and David Berkowitz. So once again, this comes from The Ultimate Evil. 
A Westchester Tavern employee, whose name is also known to investigators, stated that at about 1.30 a.m. on October 16, 1976, he threw David Berkowitz, Michael Carr, and a companion named Bobby out of a favorite car watering hole in Greenberg, the Candlelight Inn at 519 Central Avenue. The employee knew Michael Carr and said he likewise recognized Berkowitz and Bobby. Shortly after the rowdy trio were shown the exit, two shots snuffed the candlelight. One hit the front of the building and embedded in the wall, but the other crashed inside and wounded a young woman in the ankle. Not satisfied, the unknown snipers pegged two more shots into an office building at nearby 455 Central Avenue. We would consider this incident when analyzing other sniper attacks in Westchester, several of which mentioned earlier. One of those, which involves the wounding of a young girl, happened within a mile in the Candlelight Inn. The candlelight endured a few hard times. Witnesses said a woman connected to the Son of Sam investigation once shot out the tavern's clock. The ballistics report from the candlelight and 455 Central Avenue incident stipulated that all the bullets were fired from a revolver, possibly of Smith & Wesson manufacture, either a 38 Special or a 357 Magnum. The following handguns were registered to other members of the Carr household at the time of Michael Carr's death. Two Smith & Wesson 30, 357 Magnums, two Colt 38s, a Smith & Wesson 32, a Bauer 25, a Colt 25, and a Colt 22. Besides his candlelight capers, Michael Carr had the insidious inclination of obtaining credit cards under fraudulent names, some scented with illusions of royalty. For instance, this upstanding Scientology counselor held charge, charge cards from both Gimbel's department store and European health spas in the name of Baron de Sharnkowski. At J.C. Penney, at J.C. Penny, at J.C. Penny, he registered as M.V. Dexzarnkowski, and at Bloomingdale's, he purchased his fragrances under the moniker M. Dekarnowski. Michael Carr fancied himself as an ex exiled Russian nobleman, even to the point of creating his own coat of arms. When I saw his barren credit listings and also noticed that the word Tsar was hidden in two of the last names, I was reasonably certain that another of the Breslin letter aliases was deciphered, the Duke of Death. I suspected the remaining alias, the Wicked King Wicker, belonged to a certain other party. We already knew who John Wheaties was, and we believed that the 22 Disciples of Hell referred to the cult itself. So anyhow, that is a little bit about the Carr family. And as Mari Terry says, you know, perhaps we now know who John Wheaties, the rapist and suffocator of young girls is and perhaps we also know who the duke of death is and you know who knows um i you know don't think it's unreasonable for monetary to suggest that the 22 disciples of hell could be a reference to the cult itself and who knows about the wicked king wicker but anyhow this i think we are running at almost an hour and 40 minutes is what my computer is telling me and that's before i even put in any audio clips or maybe songs that i might put into the podcast so it's already going to be a lengthy one so i think that we will leave it here for the time being so stick around for part two which will most likely be the conclusion of our journey into the son of sam and we will kind of conclude with what terry has to say we will 
also talk about some things that aren't mentioned in the ultimate evil a lot of today's um, research you can find in the ultimate evil um, we also do cite today sinister book sinister forces book three by peter lavenda um but to, next week we will get into some other stuff and we will also talk about not just the son of sam killings but how this cult may relate to other things such as the Manson family, the Arliss Perry murder, and the Cotton Club murder, and some other stuff. So it's going to be a pretty juicy episode. If you like this one, I think that you'll dig the next one too, my friends. Um, but yeah, a lot of fun. If you liked this episode, please give it a uh, some stars on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. Get it to where on Spotify there's no longer the thing where it doesn't tell you how many reviews there are um so if you wouldn't mind taking the time i would appreciate that help get the podcast seen by some more people if you really enjoyed it and you think you might have a friend who'd enjoy it go ahead send it on over to them see if i care but i'm not telling you what to do do it um i'm not telling you what to do um i guess i should get into the neuro-linguistic programming so that way i'm more persuasive you are listening to things observed um, but anyhow, it was a lot of fun. We're going to get into some real juicy stuff on our next episode. So stick around. Love y'all. Had fun. I'll talk to all of y'all soon. Yeah.